All right, let's go Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. If you uh, have a Bible, grab it real quick. It's okay to run across the house. You don't have to go that far. If you don't have a Bible, that's also okay. Uh, but we're going to put our text for the morning up on your screen in just a moment. Uh, but if you do have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and open it up to Matthew chapter 13. So we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things. But chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Uh, we, we for real want you to know God. That's what we're about here. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, uh, give me a call sometime this week and we can probably do something about that. I'd be happy to mail one to you. I don't care. I'll meet you somewhere in like the you know, Wendy's parking lot or something. I don't know. We'll work it out. All right. So we are nearing the end now of a series that we've been working on this spring since Easter, before Easter even, uh, that we're calling The Gospel is a Blank. The gospel is a blank. The gospel is a this. The gospel is a that. And so each week we're filling in uh, that blank with a different word or phrase, right? And so um, the premise that's driving this idea is that, well, I happen to think that one of the best ways to give picture to the gospel, the picture to uh, what God is and has done and, and will be doing, is to talk about the gospel like it's a diamond, a diamond. And we all kind of understand what a diamond is, whether you got one on your finger, if you only ever seen one on TV, or maybe in a jewelry case that you can't possibly afford. Right? We've all kind of seen a diamond. We get what diamonds are. And so uh, diamonds are, are cut with, with facets. And so if somebody cuts a diamond correctly, you kind of ooh and ah at it. And so facets is just a fancy word for faces. But, uh, and so uh, you spin the diamond around, you can look at it from this angle, and you can look at it from this angle, and you can look at it from this angle. And those angles, those facets, they're, they're not in competition with each other. It's not that one is important and all the others are just kind of around. Right? And so they're all working together to form one magnificent jewel. They enhance each other. And so the correct way to look at a diamond is to hold that sucker up, spin it around, and admiring it from all the possible different angles. Have you seen it from this way? Man, look how the light catches it. Oh, but have you seen it from this way? Look how it sparkles just so. All right? And the gospel, I think, is the same way. Multiple facets, multiple angles that we can look at this thing from and admire it from, but those angles aren't in competition with each other. They serve and elevate and magnify each other. We could say it that way. We can't reject the parts of the, of the diamond that we don't like or, or think are less important. All right? uh, God has given us a singular jewel. And to see that jewel correctly is to not only enjoy it, but then to turn around and, and praise the one who decided to come up with such a thing. To celebrate the giver, the, the cosmic diamond maker, we could call him. He's the one that deserves the glory for creating all this. So over the course of this series now, and we spun this diamond around, and, and we've highlighted several different angles, several different facets. We've looked at how the gospel is, is a promised reality and a narrative, a real story involving real people in real time and space. We've, we've looked at how the, the gospel is both a, a transaction and a present reality. And we've looked at how the gospel is a mission and a, a family identity. And then last week, last week we looked at how the gospel is a call to suffer, to suffer. That God's people should expect suffering and persecution in this world. Not as some kind of slip up of God's sovereignty. He didn't lose sight for us for a, uh, for a second. But, but rather, we, we view suffering as a tool in our God's hands. A tool in his hands to bring about other wonderful things. Things like the completion of his gospel mission. Or, or shaping us to, to look like our persecuted king. We never chase persecution. We never chase suffering. We don't pursue it. But that suffering in the hands of our good God, it's not something we ought to necessarily fear either. It's actually something that 
we could maybe even potentially lean into. Why? Well, because he who holds on to us is good. He's big, and he's good, and we can trust him. We can trust him. But that was also last week. It's only one facet, and so we can spin the gospel diamond yet again. So what angle do we get to marvel at this gospel jewel from this morning? The gospel is a fountain for joy. A fountain for joy. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, that sounds like the exact opposite of suffering. You're absolutely right. It's the exact opposite of what we talked about last week. And so if you haven't noticed yet, there are antipodal points all over this gym. One of the biggest ones is one that we've already, already been alluded to this morning. We talked about it a few weeks ago. The gospel is both a past tense transaction and a present tense work in you, a present tense reality. It's not one or the other. It's both and. And so we get the same kind of nuance today. The gospel is, yes, a call to suffer, but it's also at the very same time a fountain for joy. Not either or, both and. We can spin the diamond to the other side and see this from another angle. So what do you normally think about when you think of joy, right? Joy is a common word in churches. It's a little little less common outside of churches, but what do you normally think about when you think of joy? Listen, I think for most people, if we were just to take a poll out on the street today, we'd have to try real hard to drum up a crowd, right? But if we were to just take a poll, I think most people, when asked to define joy, they start remembering uh, pleasant events in their lives, right? Stuff that they're fond of. Big moments filled with happy memories. You look back on birthdays or graduations or maybe that big vacation you took. And even saying that right now, like in a time where many of those things, if not all of those things, have been yanked away from us, ripped away from us. I mean, doesn't bringing up those memories sting just a little bit? I think it's really easy for us to fall into assuming that that we've all been robbed of joy in this season, right? It's been taken from us outside of our control. In fact, I, I think that there are a lot of people, not only in our church, but definitely outside of our church, uh, who likely struggle right now to find anything at all they can point to and say, yes, that is joyful. That is joyful. And some for significant reason, right? Whether it's because of the virus itself or because of all the fallout that has come with it. There there are people who are sick. There are people who have lost jobs. There are people who have had major life plans completely upended. And now they're just sitting around twiddling their thumbs going, well, I hope I get an answer soon. Figure out what my next step is. What a time to be alive, right? I know some people think it was probably weird to preach on suffering last week. I get that. But I can, I can tell you, like, it feels weirder to talk about joy in this season. I think it's harder, even. It's harder to preach a sermon on joy. Don't you know people are dying? Don't you know people are watching their livelihoods crumble without any ability to do something about it? What do you mean joy? And it's precisely moments like these. Because I think it's precisely moments like these that proved us how fragile the things that we find our joy in actually are. And I don't think it always takes seasons like this to, touch on, to teach us that truth. Um, 
I think living with open eyes in the real world, you will eventually come to that conclusion anyways. And it doesn't matter what season you're living in, all you have to do is pay attention. You will eventually learn this reality. People get sick, people lose jobs, people have life plans upended all the time. That's nothing new. That's nothing new. But when it happens on this kind of a scale, it sure seems like the lesson sticks a little better, doesn't it? We've all kind of been forced into the same understanding. We, we might optimistically fight against it as long as possible, or at least the rest of the time, but seasons like this force us to deal with this life truth. The stuff we tend to put our joy in, find our joy in, guys, it's far more fickle than we all like to believe. Whether that's good things or, or not so good things, it doesn't matter. Whether it's stuff that you've worked really diligently to try to protect or not, doesn't really matter. Earthly joy producers are wholly insufficient to carry the weight of all of our hopes and dreams. They don't have the legs for it. We might fight against that truth for a while. We might ignore that reality as long as we possibly can. Uh, but when we finally come to that conclusion, when that truth finally clicks into place, I think there are really only a couple of options that we can redirect ourselves. When we finally get to the point where we're like, oh yeah, that's how the world works. I think there's only two options really of how we can turn the ship. The first option is to look at the world with a nihilistic approach. Yes, the world is broken. Earthly joys are fickle, and that's just the way it is, guys. You can't really help it. What are you going to do about it? I mean, don't be discouraged. Just move on to the next joy. You had it while it lasted. Enjoy it. Now go to the next one. Enjoy it while it lasts, and then when that's used up, you go ahead and go get you the upgraded model. Pleasures in this life surely are fleeting, so make sure you go big. Enjoy it while, it, while you got it. And I think this is the answer that many in our world ascribe to, whether they know it or not. Them's the brakes. Suck it up and move on. This is the postmodern worldview that was birthed out of modernism, getting its just beat into submission by the Great Depression in World War II. 80 to 100 years ago, we figured out the hard way that, well, that man wasn't going to be able to build that utopian society after all, so I guess, well, life just doesn't have any meaning after all. I guess... I guess we just do our own thing. See, when you realize that, that you can't escape the fallenness of this world, nihilism sounds like an answer. For many, it sounds like the only option. The problem, though, is that it's a really bankrupt option. It will only ever lead you into a deeper hole. It's always the end result. But there is a second possible way to turn when you realize that earthly joys uh, are insufficient. And it's to find yourself an unearthly joy. When you realize that earthly joy producers cannot carry the weight of your hopes and dreams, what you need is an unearthly joy producer. And that leads us to our text for the morning, Matthew chapter 13. 
So I told you last week that Matthew's gospel is structured in a, in a distinct way, an interesting way. Chronology is present. It is there. There is a, there is a, uh, it's just not primary. Right? There's a driving narrative pushing the, for, the story forward. Right? Matthew is starting from the beginning and he's getting to the end. There is a narrative flow, but Matthew bounces around the timeline just a little bit in order to show us something important. He toggles back and forth between showing us or telling us what Jesus said and showing us what Jesus did. All right? And so he structures this thing into five main groupings of discourse. All right? And the first one is the one that everybody is familiar with. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Jesus stands up on a hillside and says, uh, blessed are you. And he goes into all of these realities. Jesus answers the question in the Sermon on the Mount, who are his kingdom citizens and what do they look like? That's the question he's, he's going for. The second discourse is the one we looked at last week. We looked at chapter 10, right? Jesus answered the question, what should his followers, what should his disciples expect as they go and do what he's commanded them to go and do? What's coming down the pipe for them? The third of those five discourses takes place in chapter 13. It's where we are this morning. Matthew um, groups up several of Jesus' parables illustrative stories that teach a singular point. And, uh, but these parables, they're, they're not just random. They're grouped together for a reason. Uh, it's, uh, Matthew doesn't just sit down and like write out a top 10 list of his, of his favorites. They all fold in different layers to answer the question, what are the values that drive Jesus's kingdom? What is it about Jesus's kingdom that's different and better than all the lesser kingdoms of this world? What are the values that drive Jesus' kingdom? And so quite naturally, these parables have come to be called the kingdom of Jesus parables or the parables of, of Jesus' kingdom. And we're really good at naming stuff, right? And even, though you haven't, even if you haven't spent much time at church, like I, even if you don't have much familiarity with the Bible, there, there's still some of these parables that you might be familiar with. First up, you got the parable of the sower. Uh, it's a well-known parable. Jesus talks about going out and, uh, and you know, the gospel going out like scattered seed and it, to all these different kinds of people. And, and these people are represented by different kinds of soils, right? And some of, these, some of the seed flourishes and some of the seed gets choked out. and Some of the seed springs up really quickly but then dies off. Uh, and then other seed just never budges and never gains traction at all. And Jesus says that his kingdom is like that. His kingdom is like that. Our, our job is to faithfully plant. Our job is to scatter seed. God is the one who works in people's hearts and will bring the increase when he wants to. That's, that's what Jesus' kingdom is like. And so after that, Matthew gives us the parable of the weeds. In the story, some jerk comes along and plants some weeds in the middle of the harvest crop. Oh no, what are we going to do about it? He says, don't worry, we're fine. We're okay. Here's what we're going to do. When, when the harvest time comes, we'll, we'll, we'll cut the weeds out. It'll be easy to separate the weeds from the, the crops in that season. The master of the field's not daunted by this. Those who don't belong will be separated out. I got it. Jesus says, my kingdom is like that. After that, we're told the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, pictures of things, small things, working through the hole or growing to be this big, mighty thing. And, and Jesus' Jesus's kingdom may look insignificant in its beginnings, but it will not stay that way. It cannot stay that way. It will flourish. It will grow to maturity. And when that does, watch out. It's a force to be reckoned with. It ain't, it ain't no small seed. It's the mighty plant. And that brings us to the two short parables that we're going to look at this morning. In chapter 13, look with me at verse 44. 
Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, there's our key word for the morning, right? Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. All right, so a couple of parables that you've probably heard before. You don't spend a whole lot of time in church without coming across these two parables, all right? But let's go ahead and just kind of rehash, retell our stories for those who maybe aren't familiar. So in the first story, a man is walking through a field and he trips over something. I don't know where he's going. I don't know where he came from, but he's walking through a field and he trips over something. He starts poking around, realizes that it's not just some dumb rock or a root in the ground. Now there's something buried there. So he gets a little curious and he starts digging away at it and he figures out, oh, okay, this is a treasure chest. There's something of value here. I I wasn't expecting to find this today, but I'm kind of happy I found it. Let's do something about this. The problem, though, is that he doesn't own this field. Nothing in this field belongs to him. And so if he were to take this treasure chest out of the field, he would definitely be stealing it. And so whether the guy is just honest or he doesn't think he can get away with it, we don't know. But for whatever reason, he's got to come up with a plan. So what does he do? Quickly covers everything back up. He runs off. He's going to buy the field. If he owns the field, he has the right to the treasure. And so he is now interested in making a real estate investment. He's got some property to buy. Problem though, it's a really expensive field. He doesn't kind of have, he doesn't have that kind of cash just laying around. And so he's got to work some angles here in order to get to that spot. And so he starts gathering everything he can that is of value to him. And the Bible says that he sells everything. And I know it's a dumb question. I get that it's a dumb question, but we live in a society where we really need to press the dumb question sometimes. How much does everything mean? It means everything, right? Jesus says he sells everything. Nothing is off the table here. Everything is, is got to go. He sells off the unnecessary stuff. Like you and I probably have a, a goodwill pile. I know I do at my house, all right? And so he doesn't just sell off the unnecessary stuff. He also sells off the totally necessary stuff, the important stuff. He liquidates it all. He sells it all off. Jesus says that he sells everything. And we should assume here that that actually means some pretty extreme stuff. Probably sold his clothes, his transportation, his donkey. We have every reason to believe that he sold his house. It's pure speculation, but I got to think he probably sold the clothes off his own back. Oh, wait a second, Woody, that seems too far. Yeah, yeah, but Jesus' point is clear. This man wants the field, and he is going to desperate measures in order to get it. He sells everything. He makes a giant sacrifice to make this investment. But why? Why would he do such a thing? Because the man knows that there's a reward waiting for him on the other side of that sacrifice. So we're told that he makes it joyfully doesn't even bat an eye about it. The treasure will be his. So he finally pulls together enough money, buys the field, and he lives happily ever after, right? Right? He's now the proud owner of a piece of property worth everything he sold to get it. Oh yeah, and a giant sparkly treasure chest. And so in Jesus' story, this guy, man, he comes out way ahead. Yay! How about this guy? And Jesus says, my kingdom, it's like that. It's, it's like that. I think that most followers of Jesus, most Christians, we, 
We can point to times in our lives where, where we trusted Jesus even when we didn't have all the answers, where we walked through and made some kind of faithful sacrifice, and then we came out on the other side better off than when we started. I think, we, I think almost every follower of Jesus has one of those stories, and if you don't yet, it's probably just because you haven't had your story yet. It's probably coming for you. Yes, there was sacrifice, but the guy made a wise investment, and Jesus seems to reward him here. What a story. I want more of those stories. But then Jesus tells another story right on the heels of that one. In story number two, different man, he's walking through the market. And this time, instead of stumbling upon something valuable, he's looking for it. Fine pearls, Jesus tells us. We're also told that he's a merchant, so it's, it's his job to buy and resell these things. So he's got a keen eye. He knows what he's looking at better than other people. He's searching out fine pearls. He's aiming for them. He's got money in his pocket and a plan to buy, and he's walking through the pearl district. And as he's walking, he passes by one of however many pearl stands, and he sees this one pearl sitting on a display in all its glory. He's got an aha moment. He gets tunnel vision. He goes, full Wayne's world. Oh, yes, it will be mine. He's got to have the pearl. Such a beautiful thing. He's got to own it. So he digs into his pockets. He starts counting out all of his money, but he's way short of what he needs. And so, But never fear, because he will not be daunted. He will not be slowed down or hindered by such a minor setback. He's got a plan. And so he runs home and begins to search for everything he can that he can sell. He comes to the conclusion that this is going to take more than he first thought, and so he he has to take a drastic step. And so he sells his home, and he sells his cart and his mule. He pawns off everything that's not nailed down, and then he races back to the market. He buys the pearl, and now he holds in his very own hands the thing that caught his eye. He has captured the thing he chased after. It's his. He did it. Woohoo! The angel chorus reaches its crescendo, and now all is right with the world. And if this were some movie, that's where the credits would roll, right? It would fade to black, we'd see who directed it, and we'd all leave the theater happy that the guy ended up happy. But in the real world, in the real world, what we're left with now is a poor guy holding onto a really expensive pearl. So what now? We're told that this man is a pearl merchant, so like I'm I'm pretty sure he's confident that he can turn around and sell it. Maybe he even already has a buyer lined up. I don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us that part of the story. Maybe he stands to even gain a considerable profit from this. Still don't know. But right now, right now, this dude's homeless, possibly naked. I don't know. He went to extreme measures in order to get this one pearl. He sold off everything. He had to have it. You think there's some people in his life who think he made an unwise investment? You think there's some people watching the story from afar going, what a fool. What an idiot. I think there's some people watching him make each one of these steps going, what in the world is that moron doing? Doesn't, doesn't he know what this is costing him? 
Doesn't he know he's extending himself too far here? What, what do you think the guy's wife had to say about this little development for the day? Hey, honey, I know we're homeless, but Pearl. What do you think the neighbors are saying? Or his former neighbors, he sold his house. What do you think those around this guy are thinking about this guy? But there may be a better question to ask. Do you think he cared what they thought? Do you think he cared? Because I'll be real honest, I, I don't get the impression that he cares. I, I don't think he cares at all. I don't think he's worried at all what everybody else thought. I think he immediately understood the value of what was staring him back in the face, and he knew it was worth going to extreme lengths to attain it. Those other people, they don't know what he knows. They haven't run the calculus like he's run the calculus. He knows what he's looking at, and he is willingly, joyfully making the investment. They, they will mock. They will ridicule. They will call him a fool. And from their vantage point, he is. He is a fool. He does look like a moron running around trying to buy a pearl. To assess each of these stories from a distance is to naturally reach that conclusion. You can't help but think that if you don't know what's actually going on. If you don't know there's a treasure there, and if you don't know the value, the true value of that pearl from a distance, you think those guys are idiots. Both the merchant and the field owner, whether they were intentionally looking or they just stumbled across it, both of them had their eyes opened in that moment to something of supreme value, something of surpassing value, the value that those on the sidelines couldn't possibly make sense of. They had no clue about. Both of them saw it. Both of them understood it. And then both of them joyfully, were told, sacrificed everything they had in order to get it. And Jesus goes, yeah, my kingdom is like that. That's what my kingdom is like. Most people, they don't, they don't understand its value. I have not opened their eyes to that reality. And judging from a distance, if you chase after my kingdom, if you really chase after it, sacrifice in order to get it, you will appear foolish. It's coming for you. Count on it. You will be mocked. You will be ridiculed. You might even be persecuted and suffer for it. But listen, there's also an otherworldly joy found here. An otherworldly joy. Jesus says, my kingdom is of such surpassing value that, that when you see it, when you really understand it, it makes sense of it, when it finally clicks into place, that what you're looking at is of surpassing value to everything else that you might give up. You gladly, you joyfully give up everything to gain it. Not begrudgingly. Jesus don't need to play that game. He's not some small God that needs to twist your arm or hold something over your head so you'll buy into what he's doing. Now, homie, don't play that. No, see, what Jesus does is that he simply opens your eyes to who he is and what he is doing. He opens your eyes to the reality of your sin and your desperate need for a Savior. He opens your eyes to both his grace and the, the fullness of life and joy that he offers to you. And then he steps back and watches you do the most natural and sane thing imaginable. Wholeheartedly press into an otherworldly and infinite level of joy. A joy that begins today. Even while there are others who don't understand what you understand, who don't know what you know, and will likely scoff at the idea, who are blind to the value of the kingdom, 
It begins today, but listen, it also, it's also a joy that is unquenchable and extends like a fountain into an eternal kingdom to come. It never ends. Church, church family, the gospel, the good news that our otherworldly king reigns forever, the gospel is a fountain for joy. A fountain for joy. When all of the earthly joy producers fail you, when they all finally reveal their insufficiency to carry the weight of your hopes and your dreams, don't forget that King Jesus remains seated upon his throne. When the realities of this broken world finally teach you the lesson that the things you put your hope in are fickle and frail, that even on their best day when they seem to actually work for a little while, there's still that ceiling that they can't ever seem to get above, that even on their best day there's always this thing that they can't quite get over that hill. Remember on that day that King Jesus offers you a joy that far surpasses anything that this broken world has ever dreamt up. It is worthy of you dumping every other thing for. It is worthy of you selling off both the unnecessary and, yes, the quite necessary. It is a joy that far surpasses the greatest joys in this world. And, and oh yeah, King Jesus' joy has no shelf life. It has no shelf life. Those, those who enjoy it today, listen, will, will enjoy it forever. There is no end to his goodness. None. So let us spin the gospel diamond this week and be awed by who our God is and what he is doing. Oh, church, and then let us run quickly to do whatever is necessary in order to grab it, to attain it, to attain the joy of his kingdom. Chase it, pursue it, invest yourself in it. If, if Jesus' promises are worth anything at all, you will not be left disappointed. You won't. He is worthy of your trust because of who he is and what he offers. Both and. So, so what do we do with this stuff? I mean, how, how do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're watching this and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, uh, man, I'm glad you're hanging around. I really am. You can respond to God's word this morning by purchasing the pearl. Do you see it yet? Do you see what Jesus is offering to you? The Bible teaches that you are separated from God because of your sin. You deserve his righteous wrath. But the Bible also teaches that God did what was necessary to rescue and to reconcile you to himself, to rescue you from that penalty. Jesus, the eternal son of God, put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. And he died on the cross as a substitute to make payment for your sin. And he rose again from the dead as a vindication of his righteousness and to secure our own spiritual life. And now as the conquering king, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith this morning. And you can do that. You can turn away from your sin and you can turn to him as Savior and Lord. No matter where you are this morning, no matter what kind of device you happen to be watching this through, Jesus is there and he's calling you to respond to him. And so you can do that. You can respond to Jesus today. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song. 
That's a time for you to do business with a holy God. <laughs> Call on him to save you this morning. Normally I'd be down front here calling people to come forward and we'd talk with you and pray with you. I can't do that today. But listen, Jesus has never needed that. He doesn't need this moment. He's calling on you now, so give yourself to him. But man, I'd love to walk you through it. Just because we're separated doesn't mean we can't talk. We can get creative if you give me a call. Give me a call after we're done here. Jump in the pastor's Q&A. We'll meet at Wendy's. <laughs> Whatever. You don't need me. But man, I'd love to help you walk through it. We could do that together. If you're watching this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response isn't actually much different. It's not. Maybe you've responded to Jesus a long time ago, but there's all these other things that he's called you to that you haven't acted on, you haven't thought were worthy of your time or worthy of your attention, or, or maybe, let's be honest, you didn't think they were worthy of the cost. Yeah, Jesus, I know what you say, but look what you're asking me to give up for that. Can I ask, though, who could ever give you a better deal than Jesus? Like, even saying that out loud, we, how, how stupid do we seem? I'm guilty of that. Who could ever give us a better deal than Jesus? Like, you think he would ever try to pull one over on you? Saw you coming, so he changed the weights. Now see, what's more likely the case is that the things that you thought were too costly, too pricey, are the very things that in our immaturity we didn't see rightly in the moment. We didn't see the value of yet. That's more likely what's going on. So, so my prayer, my desperate prayer is that God would open our eyes this morning to see the unsurpassable joy of his kingdom. The incomparable joy that comes with joining in what he is doing. My prayer is that you would correctly see the pearl and then joyfully buy it. Be pleased to purchase it. What kingdom opportunities have you walked right past because you weren't smart enough yet to notice, weren't smart enough yet to know any better in what you were looking at? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That's a time to do something about that. Don't, don't miss it again. Let's do something with it. Maybe you need to respond to God's word in some other kind of way. Maybe it's by being obedient in baptism. Maybe it's by joining this church family. Maybe it's by finally saying yes to that call of missions that God is putting in front of you. There are all these different ways that we can respond, but let's do it together as a church family this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Matthew 13. Thank you for parables that... Give us a hint of what your kingdom is like. Open our eyes to see. Open our eyes to see. Let us see the value of who you are and what you are doing. Let us see the value of what you put on the table for us to walk in. I, I highly doubt any one of us will get to the other side of this. Any one of us will stand before you one day and feel like it was, wasn't worth the price. I, I enjoyed doing what you called me to, Jesus, but I, I don't know. You asked me to give up a little too much. Oh, would you open our eyes today rather than in that moment?
Will we never mistake who you are and what you're doing? Will we never mistake the things you call us for as some kind of lesser joy than anything this world offers? Thank you for being a God who far surpasses earthly things. You're it by nature, but somehow you let us let us see a, a glimpse of that. And so thank you for the glimpse. For those who know you, love you, walk with you, would you call us to repentance? Would you help us take the faithful steps, sell off either literally or metaphorically whatever we need to, and buy the pearl? And Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, you open eyes to see? Would you awaken hearts to long for and chase? You are big and you are good. You are lovely and you are God. You bring people into your kingdom this morning. You create opportunities for us as a church to, to learn about these people you're bringing into your kingdom. Help us serve them well. Point them in ways that they can continue chasing. And however we need to respond, give us the, give us the courage to go against culture, to go against what those who don't understand the value yet think is common sense. But even more than that, show us your goodness. Because I think in that moment, we don't care anymore. In your name we pray. Amen.